Today's podcast features an article from Discern Magazine. A popular religious movement calls itself Pentecostal. But does this movement accurately reflect what occurred on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2? The second chapter of the book of Acts records the momentous events that occurred on the Feast of Pentecost when God gave his Holy Spirit to the disciples. That Pentecost was an extremely important day. Not only was God's Spirit given, but it marked the beginning of the church that Jesus had promised to build, going all the way back to Matthew 16, verse 18. But the word Pentecost has taken on a different meaning for millions of people around the world today because of a religious movement that often identifies itself as Pentecostal. This movement, which is actually one of the fastest growing religious movements in the world in the latter half of the 20th century, claims to be a modern continuation of the Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. But does modern-day Pentecostalism really reflect the spirit of the biblical day of Pentecost we read about in Acts chapter 2? What exactly is Pentecostalism? Let's take a look at that first. Pentecostalism is a religious movement based on the belief that the miracles found in Acts chapter 2 are signs that people with the Holy Spirit through all times must experience. Pentecostals believe that baptism of the Spirit is evidenced by experiencing specific gifts, and if you don't experience those gifts, you likely don't have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes this movement is called charismatic Christianity. The primary gift that many Pentecostals seek is speaking in tongues or tongue speaking. Speaking in tongues is seen as being moved by the Holy Spirit to speak words or utter sounds that are claimed to be unlearned human languages or sometimes the languages of angels, and because of that, unintelligible to the human ear. Pentecostals also try to seek other gifts, such as prophesying, which is seen as spontaneously speaking emotionally driven words that they believe are inspired directly by God, Faith healing, of course, spontaneous physical healings of bodily ailments. Ongoing revelation, uh, basically God speaking or implanting thoughts into people's mind on an ongoing basis. Uh, Spontaneous displays of emotions supposedly prompted by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes this is shown through laughing, crying, shouting, or other uncontrolled outbursts of energy. And then also something called being slain in the Spirit. An experience that probably many people have seen practiced on TV. Uh, Many tele-evangelists do this in their services that they broadcast on television. But this is pretty much when a preacher prays over somebody or proclaims something over somebody, taps them or sometimes pushes them on the forehead, and then the person falls back on their backside into a trance-like state. But the key word in all these experiences is spontaneous. This approach has led many Pentecostal churches to reject structured and organized church services, the traditional style of church services that have been practiced through the centuries, and instead offer a a much more unstructured and emotionally driven service where literally anything can occur at any given time. Sometimes this includes people shouting from the audience, uh, people standing on their feet, raising their arms in the air, waving their arms uncontrolled gyrating and dancing, and sometimes participants being whipped up into various states of emotional euphoria and frenzy. Pentecostal meetings vary widely from church to church and even from service to service. 
It's interesting that a significant trend we see in modern Christianity is what one commentator called the Pentecostalization of Protestant Christianity. And this basically describes denominations that were formerly in their history more structured and traditional in their services are now transforming themselves by integrating various aspects of charismatic worship into their services, making them more free-flowing, making them more spontaneous, having a lot more appeals to emotion, uh, primarily to appeal to a growing number of people who desire these kind of experiences. But now let's ask the question, does Pentecostalism reflect or replicate the Acts 2 Pentecost? Is it really an accurate reflection of what we read about in Acts chapter 2? Well, let's examine some of the miracles that actually occurred on that day as recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. The first one we see is divine wind and fire. When God gave his spirit to this group of people, it was announced, we read, as of a rushing mighty wind. That's, that's what they heard. That's what they experienced as the Holy Spirit came. Luke also describes it as falling on them as tongues of fire resting upon them in verses 2 and 3. Now, God used these displays to dramatically emphasize the magnitude and the power of his Holy Spirit. Both wind and fire are forces that physically represent power, in this case, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it is interesting to note that we don't see many Pentecostal churches having displays like this, fire resting over their heads and the sound of a rushing mighty wind involved in their services. We also see in the book of Acts chapter 2, the miracle of tongues. Now, this miracle as we read it in the scripture, allowed men whose native language was Aramaic, the apostles, to communicate to people who spoke an assortment of languages who were gathered in Jerusalem for that Pentecost. People from all over the, the area at that time, all over the known world. We see that people there would have spoken Persian, Akkadian, Greek, Latin, Egyptian, and Arabic, and probably other languages that we're not aware of. The apostles were able to communicate the gospel message to these people in their own languages without having ever studied those languages. That was a miracle. They were empowered to speak and understand languages so that, we read in verse 6, everyone heard them speak in his own language. It was a miracle in the speaking and the hearing. Now, the purpose of the tongues was simple to miraculously get the attention of the diverse crowd and allow them to understand the apostles' words. It was a miracle. It was amazing. But as we'll see as we go along, it's very different than what is called the gift of tongues today. We also see in Acts chapter 2 the miracle of prophesying. The apostles, especially Peter, were given the miracle of speaking under God's inspiration. And that's what prophesying really means in this context, speaking under God's inspiration. Through God's spirit, we read that Peter delivered an inspired and inspiring message, all impromptu, without any preparation. He didn't know he was going to speak that day. In fact, the message was so effective that we read that many people were cut to the heart and acted on the stirring call to repentance that Peter spoke about. Peter's impromptu sermon was a miracle. And we also read about the miracle of God's calling. As a result of that inspired preaching, we read about 3,000 people believing the gospel and being baptized. 
Now, we also understand that God specifically called these people. They weren't just convicted and convinced by a motivational message. No, God specifically selected and called these people. That's made very clear in the scripture. But notice that these converts, these people who were called into the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, didn't display any of the signs that many Pentecostals seek today. They didn't start speaking in tongues themselves, and they didn't have, at least we don't read about, any charismatic displays of emotion. It's not there in Acts chapter 2. But what does it say they did? Well, we're told in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, we're told what they did, those people who were called as a result of these miracles and as a result of God's calling, of course. We're told they learned doctrine, so they were educated. We're told they fellowshiped, which means they, they associated with each other and they conversed with each other. They shared meals, they prayed, they were unified, and they cared for one another and were joyful. Now, all these things may not seem as exciting and dramatic as a Pentecostal experience that is talked about today, but it does represent the genuine experience of those God truly calls in all ages. When God calls somebody, this is what they do. They learn, they fellowship, they share meals with each other, they pray, they come into a unified body that takes care of each other, and there is joy. That is the genuine Christian calling. Now, the significance of the events of Acts chapter 2 can never be overstated. It was a dramatic day. It was an important day, one of the most important days in all of human history. But is Christianity really about trying to duplicate the miracles of that day? When we study the Bible, we see that God has certain patterns of working. One pattern is that when he begins his direct involvement in something important, he often does so in a dramatic way. He does that to make his presence absolutely clear, without a question. When he began working with Israel as a nation in the Old Testament, we read about different miracles that he performed that were unmistakable miracles. For instance, the exodus from Egypt and establishing them in the land of Canaan. So many miracles that were involved in that such as appearing to Moses in a flaming bush that never burned down, ten plagues that he brought on Egypt, he parted the Red Sea, he gave them nourishment for 40 years in the desert, he stopped the flow of the Jordan River, and we could go on and on and on. But the thing is, Israel didn't continue experiencing these miracles over and over throughout their history. These were miracles that were done for a specific purpose at a specific time. Likewise, God began his church through a series of dramatic miracles that we've already discussed. The sound like wind blowing, floating fire, divine language translation, an inspired impromptu sermon. Those were given to accomplish God's purpose and make his involvement absolutely clear. Now, if we read further ahead in the book of Acts, when we come to Acts chapter 10, we see that tongues were given at another first in church history, when God began giving the Gentiles the Holy Spirit. That was another very important event, and it was marked with that miracle. And the book of Acts records many other miracles, but we don't really see another day that was exactly like that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We don't see a day that dramatic being repeated. Tongues were not spoken every time an apostle spoke to a group, because if the speaker in the audience had a common language, there was no need for that miracle. 
The point is, the miracles of Acts chapter 2 weren't to be repeated throughout time, and nor should we try to force God to replicate them or think that they must occur as proof of God's Spirit in our lives. That approach is an incorrect interpretation of Acts chapter 2. But it's also important that we consider that many of the signs that modern Pentecostals seek today are very foreign to Acts chapter 2 and the Bible itself. For instance, when Pentecostals claim to speak in tongues, they are virtually always verbalizing meaningless jargon, allegedly outside of their control. This is very different from the biblical use of tongues, which was specifically given for breaking down language barriers between the apostles and a linguistically diverse group. Furthermore, the Bible nowhere describes Christians experiencing chaotic displays of emotion, such as dancing down church aisles, falling backwards into a trance-like state, or being worked up into an emotional frenzy. Let's be absolutely clear what these displays are. These displays of uncontrolled and chaotic emotionalism are not of God, nor are they gifts of the Holy Spirit. In reality, these displays simply showcase people's ability to manipulate the emotions of others. Sadly, people can mistakenly confuse emotional feelings with a religious experience. Pentecostal and many other emotionally based churches often use a combination of music, lighting, and vocal inflection to influence and stir human emotions. In fact, very similar methods are used to stir the emotions at rock concerts. We caution our readers to be alert and careful of the allure of these emotionally driven religious experiences. Understand that emotions are a powerful force and they can be manipulated. But now let's ask the question, what is the real evidence of God's Spirit? How can you tell if a person has the Holy Spirit? Because many Pentecostals will tell you that they need to experience these gifts in order to prove that they have the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says something quite different. If we go back to the Acts chapter 2 Pentecost and focus on what Peter commanded the people to do, we see that in Acts 2 verse 38, he urged the people to repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. True repentance isn't a mere emotional experience. It's a rational and intelligent commitment to changing our thinking and life direction, to changing from a carnal way of thinking, a human way of thinking, to God's way of thinking. Baptism is the physical ceremony that represents burying our old sinful ways of life and beginning to live an entirely new way of life, a life driven by God's law, by righteousness. And the Holy Spirit is the power that God gives us to live that converted life, to change and to become more like God. The genuine evidence of God's Spirit in a person's life is not these chaotic displays of emotion or demonstrating these alleged spiritual gifts. No, the real evidence of God's Spirit at work in the life of a human being is the development of God's spiritual character. God's Spirit is given to people who genuinely strive to obey Him. We find that written in Acts 5, verse 32. Sadly, obedience to God is not a theme many religions emphasize today. My friends, the real evidence of God's Spirit is a changed life, a life where sin and selfishness and carnality are replaced by characteristics of righteousness, of truth, of love, of joy, of peace, of long-suffering, of kindness, of goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Just think about that last one, 
self-control. Losing control of oneself in an emotional experience that leads to unpredictable actions, that is the opposite of self-control. God's standard is that we always maintain control of our thoughts, emotions, words, and actions. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 32 and 33, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. True servants of God maintain control of their human spirit and avoid uncontrolled and chaotic behavior. Now, the Bible does talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit. We read about those in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and other places in that book. But these gifts, as described in the Bible, are very different than what we see in modern Pentecostalism. These gifts are skills that God gives his people to edify and build and serve his church. Reading through Paul's listing of these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 shows that they are not emotionally driven or theatrical, but practical aptitudes essential for the church to function. Yes, we should seek spiritual gifts, but spiritual gifts according to God's definition, not according to the definition of modern religion. So what is the real lesson of Pentecost? The key takeaway of Pentecost is that Christians need God's Holy Spirit. Yes, they do. Absolutely. You cannot be a true Christian without it, according to Romans 8 verse 14. But we must have a proper understanding of what God's Holy Spirit is and what its genuine impact on a Christian life is. It is not a spirit that leads to the chaos of Pentecostalism. The Bible describes it as a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. What we need is the true spirit of Pentecost, not the empty counterfeit of Pentecostalism. Now, before we end this episode, let's take a look at the Pentecostal movement once more and consider the growth of this movement. Pentecostalism is a relatively young religious movement. Though various forms of charismatic practices go back further into history, modern Pentecostalism is really traced back to the Azusa Street Revival that occurred in the Los Angeles, California area in the early 1900s, led by a Methodist minister named William Seymour. Today, Pentecostalism is one of the fastest growing religious movements in the world. In fact, in 2020, 26% of mainstream Christianity identified themselves as some form of Pentecostal. Though its historical roots are in the United States, it is interesting that it has experienced its biggest growth and expansion in Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia in recent years. Though there are some groups that openly identify themselves as Pentecostal, the movement isn't limited to a single denomination or church. Various elements of charismatic practices are found within and on the fringe of nearly every church and denomination of modern Christianity. Examples of charismatic practices are especially found within the growing number of non-denominational churches that are springing up across the United States. These churches are often called megachurches because of their size. Since these churches are free of denominational constraints, many have developed their own unique brands of worship featuring various elements of the charismatic movement. Some of the notable influences of the charismatic movement on these groups are the integration of contemporary praise music, hand-raising, and more informal services that place a heavy emphasis on emotion and experience. For the Discern Podcast, I'm Eric Jones. 
Thanks for listening. For more information from today's featured article, visit lifehopeandtruth.com.